Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. This next episode touches on some really interesting areas. My guest, Rajiv Lumba, has spent a number of years working across Asia in the market research and intelligence field. After working at Nielsen for a number of years, he became a part owner in a small business back in 2014. And over four years, he helped build that business from around 1 million in sales up to about 14 million in sales across multiple countries before the business was actually acquired by a Japanese multinational. Since then, Rajiv has gone on to build his own business and he's really pushing the boundaries around technology and AI um, to understand really what happens in the minds of consumers when they're making decisions. Now, it's the kind of information that every business owner would love when they're designing a product or some form of marketing campaign. Rajiv also shares some excellent tips for business owners looking to scale their company. I hope you enjoy the episode. This is Rajiv Lumba. Hey, Rajiv, welcome to the show. Hi, Simon. Thanks a lot for having me on your show. My pleasure indeed. I'm, um, I'm really excited to be chatting to you today and hearing more about your story. Now, I know we're going to jump in and learn a little bit about a business that you've built up and eventually exited um, before moving, of course, on to what you do today, but maybe just at a high level, maybe just for the listeners, you could give us a little bit of your background um, just to what led to that first first business. Sure. So uh, I've been in the field of consumer research, or some, sometimes people call it as marketing research, for over around uh, 17 years. I've been, I was in Indonesia for 15 years. So in Southeast Asia, I've been more over around 17 years in Southeast Asia. In my previous uh, company uh, called Cadence International, which I joined as uh, one of the ESOP employees. So I got some shareholding. Uh, and then, you know, me as well as my uh, partner uh, at that time, we took the company to, to great heights in Indonesia, as well as we started Vietnam as well as Middle East operations. I was there for around six years. Uh, company got sold to one of the Japanese firms. So that was my first experience of a startup of scaling it and exiting it. So I was a part of, of the entire sell of the business. I uh, have seen the due diligence processes very, very closely. Uh, the entire acqu- uh, you know, acquiring, how a company acquires the other one, uh, how do you scale up? So that was has been my entire journey uh, till 2017 in my previous organization. And then 2018, I started my current company, which is called Neurosensor. And that's where we... Uh, raise funds uh, we did three round of fundraising oh. so currently yeah, the company is doing great uh, so yeah, that that has been my journey till now 
Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, and I look forward to getting into that business. But so, so obviously, with a with a podcast called Buy, Build, Sell, you know, as we were chatting before, I mean, we we sit, we talk to business owners, entrepreneurs, and and we always see the Buy, Build, Sell came from this idea that business is a cycle. You know, people get in, they kind of build and do some stuff, and then eventually get out. And some businesses, business owners, um, do that one loop of that. You know, they only have one business they ever do. Other people get on that journey and they'll do lots of trips around that merry-go-round, right? And so I'm, I'm really fascinated with your story because you've come at this from an angle, you you know, and I want to explore this ESOP and stuff like that, but, um, you know, you've clearly, clearly come in, built it, sold it, gone back out, started again and doing cap raises and all this sort of stuff, which is fascinating. And it's, uh, you know, to... To get back on that journey and go for another round in the cycle, there's got to be something there that's quite attractive. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to peeling that apart a little bit with you. Um, so take me back to, so it was Cadence um, was the business. Um, you mentioned you got in via an ESOP program. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? And, and, and for the uninitiated, what, is, what does ESOP actually mean? Well, before Cadence, I was in a, in a very, very big firm called Nielsen. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is again, I think, is, is a very big consumer research firm. Uh, yeah. I'm sure a lot of people will know about Nielsen. Yeah, yeah. So Nielsen global, was, global. Was, <laughs> yep. this is a big yep. global firm. So from Nielsen, uh, you know, I was kind of settled to some extent in my comfort zone as a director. And then uh, one day this opportunity came to me all to join Cadence International, which was a very small firm at that point of time. The guy who started Cadence International in Indonesia, I knew him so very, very well. Of course, the company was small. Uh, uh, they could not pay hefty salaries. Yeah. Uh, you can understand, right? This startup. Uh, and at that time, the concept of VC was not there. So it was all bootstrapped. Uh, but when I joined the organization, uh, I bargained well for the ESOPs because I was coming at a, a relatively uh, you know, a package which which possibly a lot of people will say that it was not they would not have taken that decision at that point of time yep. but in a way I took the decision coming from a big organization to a small organization and uh, ESOP basically means employee share options but my employee share options were very target based so if the company hits X I get X so over time you know as, as we kept on building the business gotcha. I, my shareholding kept on going up and and tell me, so when when you first went there, give us an idea of how big the firm was. Like, can you share what broadly what it was turning over at the time? Yeah, so when I joined there, it was around twenty people, yep. uh, and the turnover was close to one point five million dollars. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, so in a span of four or five years, uh, we took from one point five million dollar to approximately twelve to fourteen million dollar as a wow. business. Uh, and then uh, during that time. Uh, because the company was doing well, uh, I also invested into Vietnam office along with with the partner of the company, as well as the founder of the company. The guy was based in UK, mm-hmm. and then three of us uh, kind of started Vietnam office, and then uh, we also started Middle East office. Uh, so that was a journey of of my journey of 2011 till 2017 of, of scaling up three uh, countries and and building up the operations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Scaling a, a business internationally is no no sort of walk in the park. Um, what were some of the big challenges you fa- faced on that growth path? I think Indonesia. The first challenge was grow was growing in Indonesia because you know at that time uh, I was very young. I didn't have uh, equity to what I have right now. And I was around thirty one years, relatively new kid on the block. 
example of and trying to go and sell a startup product to a large enterprise is difficult as you can think of mm. uh, because you know people will normally go to the big firms they will go to a wpp or a nielsen if they need research so for me to convince uh, clients to take our services how are we differentiated took a bit of time uh, it was not the bed of roses of course uh, set of it took a bit of time to convince clients but once the get ball gets rolling and you're passionately delivering to client satisfaction and happiness then of course things they start rolling from there so that was the indonesia story uh, vietnam uh, yeah so when we started wanted to start vietnam then we had a local person there i didn't know much of the culture so i had to do multiple round of trips to vietnam uh, luckily got a good managing director there then um, built up the team uh, but I, because you know there was an experience of building in kate in indonesia so it was not that difficult to put the processes in vietnam in place the difficult part was getting the right leader which is always a difficult difficult part when you're trying to build a team yeah yeah i think that makes a lot of sense well, um out of interest how did you was there a real distinct strategy around those specific countries or was it kind of opportunistic you know what why did you pick those countries over all the others in southeast asia i think i mean the reason for vietnam was because if you look at southeast asia apart from indonesia vietnam was growing at a good gdp percentage you know and at that time vietnam was growing close to 78% which was one of the fastest growth in the region yeah uh, middle east because middle east is a big region uh, and we had a person who was in our team who had the dubai operations office in the previous company so he was based in indonesia then we asked him to move to dubai because he had some experience working in dubai and that's how dubai happened yeah okay so it's sort of part, partly fundamentals market growing opportunity with perhaps some of the tactical stuff of having the right people on the ground right that's correct yeah interesting and um and so you you guys built cadence up um so so just just for you know those who don't get the market research sort of field all that well like c- c- can you in a sentence or two just explain what did, what did cadence actually do for its clients what did it deliver so cadence uh, um, when i was there it was uh, more like a consumer research so so uh, a typical use cases can be that if you have a new ad that you want to test and you want to understand whether your campaign is effective or not effective and uh, you know so you want to get a consumer feedback before you launch a campaign mm. to understand what elements of the campaigns have to be changed the same goes for packaging uh, if you have got a few options of the pack to launch which one to launch so that's where the consumer feedback happens the consumer service happens so which is a lot about collecting consumer feedback on um, packaging positioning communication testing Yep. Uh, so on and so forth. So that's that's what typically is a, is a market research consulting business. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So you're working in this business. You've been building it up, rapid growth. It must have been a pretty exciting journey. Oh, it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. So it was a exciting journey of building team, building company. You know, scaling it up, uh, creating a good name in the in the in the, in the industry. So of course, it was it was very fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. And um and so you said I think um it eventually built to around sort of 14 million in sales, was that right? Yeah, that's correct. Overall, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How many staff did you have by that time? Like give us a sense of how you know the moving parts of the the business. Yeah, so I think uh, at that time Indonesia was close to around I think 120 people. Uh normally consulting companies that tend to be a uh, people intensive because you need consultants uh I think Vietnam was close to around uh, 
twenty. Middle East was close, close to around seven or eight. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. So it's, I mean, it's a decent, decent sized company. You know, that's a lot of people running around. So yeah. <laughs> and and by the time um, you, uh, I think you sort of said it was around twenty eighteen. I think you started to um, exit that business. Well, at that point. What sort of percentage would you say broadly? What, what percentage of the company did you own at that point? Uh, of course, it was a multinational, so we also had offices in US, UK, Europe. Yep. So yep. overall, I had four uh, percent of the overall global. Yeah. Right. Okay. And um, and what happened towards that exit? I mean, it was a. It came towards the business was actually sold, right? Yeah, it was sold. That's correct. And and so talk us through that a little bit. Like, you know, were you involved in the negotiations and the build up and all that sort of stuff? I was not involved in the negotiation. Of course, the founder was involved, but uh, you know, Indonesia being a big market uh, at that time for 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 cadence. Uh, mm-hmm. So of course, there were a lot of visits. So there was a lot of interest from the buyer, mainly because of the Indonesian market. Not only, but one of the reasons was the Indonesian market. Yep. And that's why we I was very closely involved in terms of uh, pitching our services to the potential buyer, showing that what we have got, our revenues, due diligence, PNLs, uh, cash flows, teams, yeah. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And and what in terms of the the value or the price of the business, do you, do you know broadly what methodology was used? Like was it a multiple of profit or something like that? How, how did they work out profit, a number? Yeah. yeah. It was a multiple okay. of uh, of EBITDA. I think at that time the multiplier was, if I'm not, I don't remember exactly, but it was a multiplier of EBITDA. Yeah. 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 Okay. And that, which is obviously a pretty, pretty typical way of looking at a lot of businesses. How long did the whole process take? I mean, from the first initial kind of, uh, I guess, you know, discussions of, hey, we've got somebody who's interested. How long did it take and what were the kind of key stages you guys had to go through? I think it took close to six months, I believe. Uh, there were, uh, so the buyer, uh, which was one of the Japanese firm, they went to all the organizations of, of Cadence, which are right around eight offices. <clears throat> they had to meet their managing directors, so on and so forth. Uh, and I think it was multiple rounds of uh, due diligence, which happened, uh, looking at the businesses, talking to the clients, uh, visiting different offices. Uh, I mean, you can think all of that, right? So that's a part of the process. So it took us approximately six months to, to close the deal. Yeah, yeah interesting. And um, I, I don't know, like, were you involved heavily in the due diligence? You know, what what, what was that like as an experience? I, I presume from what you're saying, this is the, the first time you've gone through all this? Yes, at that time, yes. Uh, I was uh, involved from a, from an entire financial perspective, arranging client meetings, uh, arranging client interviews, uh, going through the, through the entire PNLs, uh, item by item, cash flows. Yeah, after the valuation was decided along with the founder of the company at that time, but I was involved in multiple stages of uh, of the financial elements to the commercial elements, and of course the the team structure elements. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's I always find these things interesting because the due diligence process and a and a acquisition, you know, it's such a unique journey for every for every person. I mean, there's always similarities and and some common threads, but. You know, every business is different, therefore the experience is different. But um, I've found that guests on this show and business owners I speak to have all come in at this broad range of, you know, due diligence was really quick and simple and easy and it all just went by very quickly. And, I, you know, to it was a grueling and painful process that I never want to go through again. <laughs> <laughs> 
where would you say you fit on that scale? I think I'll, I'll I think to us, uh, I'll I'll say in the middle. You know, it was not very grilling process, and it was not that easy too. Of course, but I think post uh, the company got sold, uh, we had the three years of earn out period. Gotcha. Right, very very kind of uh, pass the team and structures and you align your structure with the parent company. So that part was I'll say difficult because culturally you work in a very different environment to what the new parent company does. So that part was was pretty difficult in terms of adapting to the new culture, new way of working. At the same time, you have to meet the EBITDA targets uh, because you know your future uh, cash flows also depends, and your future payouts also depends on your own EBITDA targets for the future. So it was I'll say I'll rate it around six. It was uh, not extremely tough, and it was not extremely easy to. Yeah, yeah, okay, and 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 so okay, due diligence and all that process. So now you've you've kind of just opened up this. Area of earnouts and stuff like that, which is which is fascinating. Um, you know, I think a lot of people who will listen to this episode, um, particularly those who haven't sold a business before, are, are often curious about how that stuff works. I, I've seen plenty of transactions where the total consideration for the business is often broken into upfront cash, perhaps a deferred component where they're just being paid amounts over time that are not at risk. And then the earnout component, of course, that's usually dependent on certain performance criteria being met. Can you can you share with us just roughly what sort of blend you guys had in terms of your consideration? There's something I, I can't tell you the exact numbers, but uh, sure, it was a mix of payout in the beginning when the company got sold, depending upon what percentage everybody owns, and then uh, post that there was a beta target year on year. And of course, it was a consolidated three years target. And once we meet three years target, then there's a pr- proportion which gets paid. Gotcha. It was something in the beginning and something at the last. Yeah, right. Okay, and over a three year period. And out of interest, did you did you hit all the criteria? Did you did you get the full earn out, or yeah, what did, did that look like? Did, uh, yeah, we did manage to get the full earn. Yeah, that's great. That's excellent. Well done. I mean, it's it's often an area that that becomes quite contentious with people and. You know, some of our guests on this show have even been so unhappy with the move, they've actually walked away halfway through an earnout and just said, "I don't care, keep the money, I'm leaving." <laughs> so it's how did you find that process? Can you tell us? Um, you know, obviously we don't want to go into anything that might be confidential, but broadly speaking, what was the earnout based on? You know, was it a revenue? Was it profit? Was it some other metrics? You know, what, what whatever you can share would be fascinating. It was, it was completely based on EBITDA. Okay. Um, yeah, it was completely based on profitability. Of course, the profitability went up year on year because, you know, the, the parent company wanted to see more profit, profits over time and sustainable profits. It was completely based on profits. I'll say I think all of us kind of uh, worked very hard uh, to ensure that we hit that profit. Uh, and I think, again, <clears throat> my belief was, you know, uh, it also depends on the parent company, how strict they want to be. But I think uh, with us, the process was pretty smooth. It was not as tough as possibly some of the other hosts uh, or some of the other guests in your in your uh, podcast would have mentioned. But for us, I think uh, it was not that a difficult ride. Uh, you know, uh, uh, there was a good amount of trust between parent company, the book company that bought us versus the, the entire management team. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's really, um, that's such a great 
point, you know, this element of trust and how comfortable you feel with this counterparty, right? It's, it, I, I wonder, you know, when you start talking about profit, when you know, I, I guess like a lot of business owners are afraid that once they sign the deal, they are no longer technically in control, even if they still carry the title. And so being responsible for something like EBITDA where the other party can now change the rules and move things around. I mean, they can impact whether you hit that number or not. Um, how did you feel going into that? Like, did you have, was there confident, were you absolutely confident? Were you scared, nervous? I don't know. How did you feel? Of course, initially, you know, when uh, and in the initial time, we were a bit nervous because we didn't know what's coming our way. But, you know, over time, as we developed more trust into the parent company, they they didn't interfere much into the business. Um, they allowed us to run the way it was running. They were happy with the way it was running. Of course, there were more tighter controls on financials because you know, it's a big corporate. There were a lot of procedures to follow, and we had to respect all of that. There were new new procedures which was which was which was given to to the organization, uh, which we had to implement, uh, and we had to learn those processes. But overall, from a, a independence perspective, it was not taken away. Uh, our independence still stayed intact, uh, and that helped us to to get the growth. But yeah, I mean, imagine if if you know your hands are tied and you're supposed to, and your legs are, are chained and you're supposed to run faster, you can't. But in our case, thankfully, you know, uh, none of those hands and legs were were chained, so we were allowed to run the organization in, in a manner that we were running before. Yeah, look, that's great. It's um. I just think there's so many elements when two companies come together that can cause friction. So the fact that you've had a good run at it um, is is really good. Once you got through the three year earnout, did you did you cease working there at that point in time, or did you stay on, or what 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 did that sort of end? I left I left post that. Uh, I think the the reason I'm in, though I loved the organization, the reason of me leaving was. Uh, I want to do something new and different. I wanted to bring technology in the field of consumer research. Mm-hmm. Because you know, consumer research was happening this way for a long time. And uh, I felt uh, time has come for, you know, everybody talks about tech. Can we bring tech in the field of consumer research? It's something I was really aspiring to do. And that's one of the reasons I left and started. Mm, interesting. With you leaving, was it was it well understood by the people own the new owners, the people running it, did they know that you were leaving well in advance? And and the reason I'm asking that is I'm just sort of curious as to the this planning transition phase, like what, what was happening in the lead up to you leaving and how, how did they handle that kind of stuff? So see, uh, we had the contracts in place and those contracts were very, very well defined. Uh, that's one of the things I think which... Uh, a lot of com- big com- corporates are very, very good at. So I had to kind of uh, serve my notice period, give my hand over. So uh, from my perspective, I think I ensured that, you know, uh, I got a lot of benefit from the parent company. I wanted to ensure that I give the hand over and the processes the way the contractual obligations had to, had to fill. Of course, you know, when you part ways uh, and you're running a company as a managing director, the moment you leave, it just shakes up the management to some extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think... Uh, before I left, there were some other exits happened in the other uh, countries. Couple of because people wanted to start something of their own, or they wanted to join something else. So yeah, but I think from my perspective, uh, just ensuring that I go by the contractual obligations, fulfill my duties as a as a managing director. That's something that I had to do. That was a responsibility that was given to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that makes sense. So in, in a lot of ways, it was like leaving any other kind of role. Yeah, and, and I think on top of that, there were you know three years of earn-out period. Yeah. Or uh, that gave enough window for the parent, new parent company to understand the culture, people, and so on and so forth. Yeah, it makes sense. Interested in this idea of ESOPs, how do you feel? Obviously, you participated in an ESOP there, but um, how do you feel about ESOPs broadly as a, as a motivation and retention tool? <laughs> That's a very interesting question, Simon. I mean, the way I used to think about it, not not everybody sees them in a similar way. I think the way I see it right now, because, you know, uh, startups nowadays can get funding relatively easy. Like it was not as tough an era that I went through 10 years back. Mm. Now, because you can get funds when you're trying to attract good talent, not everybody comes at a salary sacrifice. The people, what I've seen that people still want an increment over their salaries. Plus, they want to have ESOPs, especially the younger lot. Uh, I'll not say people value ESOPs the way I valued ESOPs because you know, uh, ESOPs is something is seen as, uh, and that's what my honest opinion is. A lot of people they see ESOPs as something which might materialize, might not materialize. Uh, and not many times, many people want to hang in for a long time. But building up, scaling, selling, or IPO, it takes a lot of lot of time. So not everybody values ESOP the way it should be valued. Uh, sometimes people look at immediate benefits. What is my title? What is my role? What is the increment? What is my bonus? And I think uh, that's not wrong for people to do. They're doing a sacrifice. And I think nowadays, you know, startups are relatively well-funded and they are able to afford these things. So uh, my judgment is uh, people, they still don't value ESOP the way I value ESOP. Because when I did my first exit, I remember every 1% would have mattered. Uh, so every 1% mattered. If I would have had 3 or 2 or 3 more percentage of the shares, uh, you know, that would have me- meant a lot more wealth. Uh, so to me, that the way I see right now that uh, I encourage people to do some sacrifices to get ESOP, but not everybody will treat it in a similar way. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's interesting. So, and that seems to be more from the the employee's perspective and their mindset around it. Um, you know, clearly you're on the other the other side. I mean, you're an employee and all the rest of it, your own firm. But as a business owner, what are your thoughts around ESOPs too? In terms of obviously being a retention tool for other people, but also I, I find a lot of business owners are concerned about going down that path because then they start having a whole bunch of minority shareholders. There's a whole bunch of other compliance and other things that comes with it. You know, I, I, I know some of my clients who just said, I, I, they just don't want to deal with it. They just don't want to deal with other shareholders, um, stuff like that. I mean, do, do you have a thought of, you know, a perspective as, as a business owner now? I think as a business owner, I... I'm of a perspective uh, that you should give ESOP. You should give ESOPs to good people. Uh, it's a good retention tool. And as those people, they spend more time with the company, they can see the value going up because you know, you're raising money at a higher valuation. They can see the value going up. Yes, of course, th- there's always a, a management part which comes in that you have to manage more minority shareholders. But I think that's okay because nowadays, you know, not everything you have to manage yourself. Uh, you've got lawyers, you've got firms who can help you do all of those things. My perspective as a business owner is to share. Uh, I am of a firm believer, Simon, that uh, rather than you controlling a small pie, make the pie bigger. And having more people taking that pie, share of that pie is far more valuable rather than having a small pie and you control it. Yeah. Yeah. A smaller piece of a bigger pie is um, often more achievable than just getting more of the a bigger slice of a smaller pie. Right. And at the same time, because you, know, you want uh, 
senior management to be to be seeing themselves as a part of the company because you know of course they can get salary everywhere right so they can get bonuses everywhere so what is the rule beyond i mean if you have to make them feel that they are part of the team they are part of the founders club uh, like the way i felt in you know, my previous organization though i was not the founder but i felt like a founder so uh, but i think it's not about the ethos but i think it's about the authority and responsibility you give them for that department right so you cannot just give an ethos and you just micromanage them so just give them the authority responsibility targets and that, i think that's a learning that i had from my previous organization um you give all of those things and and of course on top of that you give esops to value them as as a contributor beyond salary and, and profitability yeah i think that makes sense right i mean you you give people shares and they've got a financial incentive to work but they also need the the actual authority and the room to move to to be the person they're meant to be right yeah yeah and it's it's fascinating it's a, it's an interesting topic that comes up a fair bit um so tell us a little bit about you, the 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 current business you you left cadence and you you've what's the name of your new firm neurosensor neuro um, neurosensor yeah neurosensor yep. yeah. uh, so uh, in fact we have got two brands with the neurosensor as a portfolio so we started as a consulting company but more like a neuroscience based consulting which means you know uh, without even asking you can i read out your facial expressions eye tracking brain signals which is to get into the subconscious mind of the consumer to understand what they don't mm-hmm. say because a lot of time your decision making happens at a subconscious level so that's a neuroscience sensor started which is to so the way entire positioning happened that we do a neuroscience based consulting we read the consumer mind their, their facial expression by tracking uh yeah and and we normally went to the larger enterprises Mm. But over time, Simon, we saw a need for a survey platform, a localized survey platform, or a customer feedback platform, because not every time you can go to a consulting firm because consulting is expensive, and that's why this DIY survey platform helps a lot, and that's where we built ServiceSensor, which is a fast. Okay. Yeah. So, so getting into the subconscious mind of consumers, it, it sounds like the kind of tool I would like to bring to Friday night poker. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> can i just get a little buzz when they're bluffing you know right side bluff right side bet <laughs> or put a camera on the facial expression somewhere so that you can read their expressions <laughs> or tell everybody i'll only play poker with you if i can put a brain mapping device on your head <laughs> absolutely and now we're playing high stakes too <laughs> excellent excellent and uh so the business began for about three years and so okay so tell us a little bit about the the, the platform itself yeah so you're talking about neurosensor or service sensor neurosensor so neurosensor is as i mentioned right it's a, it's a consulting company so we have these technologies which are eye tracking or brain mapping facial expression but that's used more as a consulting yeah But how do you use that? How does that work? I mean, who, who's where are they sitting? What 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 is that? I mean, is it market testing? They're in a room. They've got cameras on them. You ask them questions. Is that is that how it works? Uh, it works both ways. One is that I can do it online. For example, when I'm talking to you, I'm showing you an ad or a packaging. I can read your facial expressions and eye tracking. But of course, I have got to you. have your consent. Yeah, and so it's just via a webcam or something like that. Yeah, like via webcam or a mobile camera. Other way of happening is that I meet you face to face and I put a brain mapping device in your head and I give you eye tracking device to wear. Right. Okay. So while you are watching an ad or you're drinking a product, I'm reading your brain signals as well as your your eye tracking data. Interesting. That's uh, that is absolutely fascinating. And so, 
uh, you said before, I think it's sort of the larger brands, I guess, that have got the the budget to be able to do this. And I, I guess it's all relative to how much are you going to spend on the campaign, right? Are you going to spend millions yeah. of dollars over here? It's worth spending to make sure you got that campaign yeah. right. So, what are there? Are there particular industries and sectors that that tend to use your services more than others? Normally, FMCG fast moving consumer goods spend a lot on on consumer research. But you know, uh, everybody who has an innovation, be it product, fact, or campaign, needs this. So, in fact, it ranges from consumer goods to telecommunication, automotive, uh, every category. In fact. E-commerce, but the biggest money chunk proportion comes from the FNCG companies. Yeah, yeah, I guess that so makes sense. A lot of products, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Neurosensum does all the consulting side of it. SurveySensum is a is a platform to do surveys as well. Can you t- tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, as I mentioned, you know, uh, the way SurveySensum came into picture uh, when we went to clients, uh, consulting is expensive. Not every time you can go to a consulting company. But that doesn't mean that clients they don't have the, the issues in hand. You know, they want to know so many things. They've got any large enterprises will have 1,000 questions every second day that they want an answer. Because they can't go to consulting, what they do, they normally do a gut feel. Or they use some traditional survey platforms which are not dynamic enough, where their AI element is missing, localization is missing. So then that's where we created the survey platform, which is what is called an omni-channel. You can plug the platform as an API into your website, app, CRM systems, uh, social media. Anytime a customer is interacting with you or your brand, a survey goes to the customer for the feedback. Gotcha. You can understand whether they're happy or not happy. You can use your database for multiple research. Or if they don't have the database, they want us to provide them the database, then we work with the panel companies. So the idea is that how can you make research faster, real time? Normally, consulting takes a month how you can make it real-time, how you can make it actionable, and how you can make it affordable. So faster, cheaper, better is the entire concept of service and that's what it's called as a SaaS, which is software as a service. Yeah, yeah. So so your clients, the model around this, um, uh, is it a monthly subscription or yeah. is that... So it's a monthly subscription, which people can use it for their marketing surveys. They call it as quick surveys or they can uh, do it for their customer experience surveys, like customer satisfaction surveys, or they can also use it for employee surveys, like employee satisfaction surveys. Yeah. It's normally a subscription model. Yeah, it makes sense. And and it's, I mean, certainly what we're seeing these days is is sub- sub- subscription-based models certainly um, are attracting great multiples and, and all that sort of stuff when people do go to eventually sell. That's correct. Because, you know, uh, what happens in a subscription model, uh, the scalabilities are higher because once your tech is done, you just need a good marketing and a sales engine running. It's almost that you're trying to sell a similar product across geographies. And a lot of these are DIY in nature. Uh, of course, you have a customer success team, onboarding team. But the amount of people that you have to recruit in a SaaS from a servicing perspective is far lesser from a consulting perspective. The key thing is to get your tech right, the product market, market fit right. Once you get that that right, then it's a matter of just marketing and having, you know, selling it well and, and, and ensuring that there's a good customer success in place. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, your current business, are you the sole shareholder or, do, or are there other business partners? I've got a business partner, uh, but he's got a minority shareholder. So it's almost like I'm a sole founder plus uh, 
or yeah, I've given insults to the to the team members. Plus, we have got VCs who are on, also on our board. Yeah, nice. Can I ask when you started this business? Did you have uh, an exit strategy or a particular exit plan in mind when you when you kicked it off? To some extent, yes. I mean, I knew who can be the potential buyers. Like for Neurosensum, uh, somebody who's attracting Neurosensum might be a consulting company who can be a buyer. Somebody who's into ServiceSensum, uh, any uh, survey platforms which are good in developed markets like US and Europe, but they want to reach to Southeast Asia and they want an immediate access to the clients as well as technology, as well as the local NLP engine, which works in the native languages. Uh, so can can be for service and some anybody who is a survey platform can be there. CRM companies they are nowadays integrating with survey platform because there's so much of CRM database, but they don't have a good enough survey platform. Uh, they can be a good potential acquirer. Chatbot companies eventually are moving into customer experience domain. Yeah. Can be so, a good so, potential. So, yeah, sorry to cut across you there. It's a, but it sounds to me like you've started this business very much with a. Um, we're likely to sell this business one day and, and we know there are pr- prospective buyers out there. It sounds like you've put a bit of thought to that. Is, is that a fair comment that you've come in thinking eventual exit would be a, would be a sale? Yes, so exit can be a sale, but uh, you know, I think uh, if IPO market in our part of the world heats up in the future, currently when we see IPO in, in Southeast Asia, we normally see B2C companies. Unlike US, you have seen a lot of B2B companies going IPO, but hopefully, you know, four or five years down the line, that can be a potential way if the market accepts B2B companies to be an IPO. Uh, Otherwise, you know, exit uh, is always a a thing at the back of the mind of the entrepreneur. Uh, It's not that I think exit every day. I think what I believe is build a good business, build a sustainable business. Uh, Simon, I don't believe in um, bleeding businesses. Okay, so to, to me, even whether it's neurosensor or service sensor, my perspective has always been, it's not about the user growth, but it has to be a, a user growth which should eventually bring a profit to you, right? As, uh, somebody who just likes doing free stuff possibly might not be our target audience until as we can see a monetization from that person. Uh, so I'm a firm believer uh, of a profitable organization, which is also growing. Like, for example, within three and a half years, we already became profitable as a company, Simon. Great. Yeah, so we already are in the path of profits. While we don't want the scalability to go down, uh, but I'm a believer that eventually you should be controlling your own destiny. Of course, you always need VCs and you need external funds to grow. But once you start controlling your own destiny, then you become more attractive. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Rajiv, I, I've been really appreciating hearing your story. It's um, it's fascinating, and I think what you're doing um, with your current venture is is even even more fascinating. It's it's really exciting stuff, um, if not a little bit scary in some ways. Um, <laughs> um, I'd like to put you on the spot in a moment and ask you if if there are any sort of final big tips that you might share with other entrepreneurs who might be listening to this, perhaps they're earlier in their journey, maybe they're thinking about exiting or or, or even starting a new venture. So, um, but before I, before I ask you that, um, is it okay for people to reach out and connect with you? Is it, is it okay for people to, you know, touch base? Where can they find more information about you or your business? Oh, sure, definitely. I think I love to share my learnings. I love to share mistakes that I did that other people should not do. You know, a lot of time people say you learn 
not only from your mistakes, it's better to learn from other mistakes. <laughs> Absolutely. It's certainly a lot cheaper. <laughs> yeah, it's much much cheaper. You know, I've done some blunders in the past. Uh, I'd love to share that. And, and if I can help in any way, I, I, I will. Yeah, brilliant. Maybe we might have to get you back on an uh, on a on a blunders episode where we can all talk about our, our biggest mistakes. Well, I, I, can, uh, I can spend two or three hours talking about that. <laughs> I think I've got probably a couple of days. So yeah, we could all. <laughs> it'd be interesting. Brilliant. Are you happy for people to reach out to you on LinkedIn? Yes, more than happy. Yeah, for sure. Excellent. We'll, we'll look. We'll we'll include a link to your profile on the show. And as we always say, uh, if you're listening to this and you'd like to reach out to to Rajiv, please just. Perhaps put a little note on your connection saying that you heard him on the podcast, on the Bible Cell podcast, so he understands where you heard about him and, and why you're reaching out. Rajiv, thank you once again. Um, you know, can I put you on the spot and ask, is is there maybe one tip that you, you'd share with other business owners who are who are on their journeys? I think I can share two or three tips if you, if you allow please, me to do please. that. I think my, my first tip will be before you think of scaling up the business, create a minimum viable product, find a product market fit, get enough use cases that you can demonstrate, and then think of scale up. Many times people, they, they just go with a full-blown product, they spend a lot of money, they go for the scale up, then they have to come back and come back to the drawing board again. Don't make that mistake. Don't be in a hurry of, you know, people read books like Bliss Scaling and other books and they say, oh, I'm going to create a billion dollars tomorrow. <laughs> um, then you have to be really lucky to be able to do that within a year some people they do that but 99.9% people they can't do that so my, my suggestion will be go step by step process uh, take customer feedback get your product right get the market fit right then think of scaling up like it, it's been three, three and a half years for me I still have been focusing in Indonesia now I feel it's the perfect time for me to go to other countries like Australia for example uh, but it took me three and a half years to perfect a market, get enough use cases. That's my feedback number one. My second tip is when you're starting a company, don't, of course, exit is there in the mind of every entrepreneur. But don't think of just making a quick buck and running away. That should not be the mindset. If you have to spend 10 years to build a great organization, why not? That's great. So while uh, the companies like Amazon or Google, which have also done well for years and years, so don't have to think about exiting tomorrow. Don't be in a rush. Uh, my third tip will be ensure that you dilute or you raise money when you really need it uh, at a right valuation. What I mean is that I've seen sometimes entrepreneurs raising too much because you know you want to raise three million. Somebody's giving you five. They like your idea, and suddenly you dilute, and you dilute so much that by the side, fourth round, you feel that you only are left with five percent of the company. And at that time, you feel bad because you got a bit greedy at, because somebody was giving you the money, you took the money. So if your product is good, um, you're able to get the market fit right, you can always raise money. You don't have to be over-raising and over-diluting because remember, uh, you know, when five years down the line, you don't want to feel sorry for yourself that you over-diluted. Dilute yeah. when the time is right. That's a really, really good tip. Um, you know, finding that balance between taking some cash today that helps you go to the next goal but not taking too much where you you're losing you're losing really your own business um that's brilliant i think all those tips are, are amazing and, and straight from a man who's done it himself so rajiv thank you so much for coming on the show i'm really grateful for your time and for you sharing your story with us yeah i just uh I really appreciate it thanks simon I, it was a wonderful discussion with you i mean i, I hope uh, people can learn a few elements from here 
and uh, implement that in their own entrepreneurship journey. Absolutely, and I'm sure they will. Thanks again. Thanks a lot, Simon. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder Questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group, a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.